Hi, it's Nathan here. Normally, I'm behind the scenes booking authors, writing scripts, and editing audio, but I'm stepping in as host for this episode to bring you more of the best books my Kobo colleagues read in 2021. You don't need to have heard our last Staff Picks episode to enjoy this one, but if our cozy book chatting vibe is working for you, then maybe go back and check it out. Okay, on to the books. Do you want to tell us who you are and what you do for Kobo? Hi, Nathan. I'm the Publisher Relations Manager for, um, for Kobo. I'm based from Amsterdam. My name is Erik Richters. Erik, tell us about the book that you brought us today. So I brought the book, The Power of Habit, um, by Charles Duick, which most likely launched like 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine had it on his table. I picked it up and I could not put it away again. What what grabbed you? It grabbed me. It I felt it was so strong because it demonstrates both how habits can negative influence processes in a person, myself, or organizations or the society, but also the positive, hmm. uh, the positive way it can influence um, th- those same organisms. And um, that, that, that the, the way the book takes you through those, that process really helped me observe. You're a, a man of so, several routines. I know you run, you cycle, you, you get out there. Uh, you know, we see each other on Strava. Um, so one wouldn't think that you'd be the type of person who would want to be able to hack your ability to stick with a habit or to understand habits. Was there a problem you were trying to solve when you, when you picked this up? I don't think I picked it up w- with the intention to to um, to solve a problem. It really grabbed me when I started reading the book. Um, the there's, I as you say, I I can I can be very um, I can be very clear in in for example taking decisions to go running, but I'm but I've, now I've read that book. I also realize that I actually need a certain goal to actually continue to do the running. So in my case, for example, I plan to run another marathon in May. That will help me to get a very routine way of training towards that time. But probably on Strava in June, you you will not see me that effective. Now, if you would ask me what would what would be what's your ideal running running behavior it would probably be hey let's run tr- three kilometers on tuesday let's run eight on thursday and we'll do 16 on sunday that at least that type of uh, effort like every week to me it's up and down so i'm not there yet that it's a real um habit like i brush my teeth every day mm. What did you learn from this book about habits that maybe drive you or maybe even on the positive side, are there habits that you wish you had that you, you think you might be better situated to, to grow? Well, maybe not immediately examples of habits, but I really learned that regular regularity helps so much to improve, to make daily wishes come true. So Mm. to make that rewarded simply by starting little routines, 
either daily or weekly. And the, the thing that grabs me the most is after a while, those things become something to do automatically and therefore do not cost you any energy or, or burden. And suddenly I realized I started doing, then, then you start doing things um, without you noticing you could even do things in parallel. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that, and then when observing that, that was for both good things and bad things, right? So there's, there's a lot of, there's a few things on the, in the book on, uh, on addiction, which you gravitate to, if you think about habits, I feel, I feel having, having beaten an addiction myself that I think addiction has an additional layer to it. Um, uh, but, but um, so that's those, and, and those addictions can be the bad things, but for, for, um, for good things, I'm, I'm, for example, now trying to figure out a way to eat an apple every day, because somehow that's something that I feel it could be a good reward. If I could make a statement, I eat an apple every day. But also somehow, for whatever reason, I have not find my cue or my routine to do that. And um, and that's a key thing to this book is that it's the power of the routine, right? And how how to translate that in something that I that I personally call the power of little jobs. Mm. If you do little pieces, r- routineous, then you then you. Um, then you get more, more, more powerful in finishing the bigger, the bigger things like Lego blocks, mm. putting, putting it on, on each other. Is this the kind of book you tend to go towards? Is, is it, is, uh, I, I know it's a little bit, it's, it's somewhat self-help, but it's also a bit of pop science. Correct. It it is full with, uh, fit with, um, with big examples. And that's what you refer to the pop science. And I I don't I don't know. I think it gave me some good, very good insights. Why it stuck? Therefore, it stuck with me. But I'm not going back. What did he write there again? Or that's not that's not how I uh, that's not how I, I how I work with it. No. But in all honesty, because of because of us talking now, I I took the book again and and flipping through the pages that did did me did suck me back in the book again. So I'm maybe when I go to bed this evening I will I will take it and re, <laughs> do a rerun. Right. Yeah. The one thing about habits that that also came to mind uh, thinking about my when I was a kid I used to play this game Frogger. It's called mm-hmm. Frogger. You're a frog and you need to jump on on beams or floating beams or something. And today my children play a game which is called Crossy Road, which is basically the same. They need to dodge trucks and they need to jump on beams. And and the the funny is you're 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 constantly busy jumping those in order to reach that endless goal. Um and the habits actually can can build bridges to not having to jump all the time across a lot of things. So then therefore that's how I that's what I took from the book to make my life way more easy. You don't have to jump every street again because you build a bridge by huh. by uh, by using the automation of habits. 
Power of Habit of Charles Duhigg. Hi there. Uh, can you tell us who are you and what do you do for Kobo? Hi, Nathan. I'm Carrie McKenna. I'm the VP of audiobooks and subscriptions for Kobo. I have a feeling we're, we're about to get an audiobook recommendation, but um, I mean, you tell me what, what's the best thing you read or listened to this year? I'm going to go out and surprise you here and say that it's actually an ebook recommendation. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean, I chose an ebook format because when I choose fiction, uh, which this is, I, I tend to choose ebook. I, I tend to be a, a nonfiction listener. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Completely makes sense. Tell me about this one. What this was, I mean, this is, this is not a first time novelist. This is no uh, plucky upstart. Tell us about uh, no. your, your Paul McLean experience. So I'm a pretty big fan of her writing. Um, and this, this one was a bit unusual for me to pick because it's a, a suspense novel a, a, about a detective and, and missing persons cases. And uh, that's not a genre I ever read really beyond, you know, anything related uh, tangentially from Stephen King when I was a youth, but um, I love all of Paula McLean's prior novels. Um, that would be Love and Ruin, which I also read this year, which was excellent. Uh, the first one that I read by her was The Paris Wife mm -hmm. uh, quite a few years ago and, and Circling the Sun as well. So just it's her writing style uh, in general that attracted me to this. That's a really interesting point because we, um, we, have, we, we published an interview with, with Paula McLean earlier this year. And part of the reason I really wanted to, to hear from her was this is a major pivot. She's gone from writing mm -hmm. these, these works of historical literary fiction to, you know, I, like you say, as you describe, it's, it's, a, it's a crime novel. But for you as a fan, you stuck with it. She's, she's still the, the novelist you, you've, you fell four years ago. If anybody else had written it, I probably wouldn't uh, pick it up. But because I know her writing and just love her her style and uh, her prose, I was motivated to, and it did not disappoint. It was a great story. Um, all of the same incredible detail that she usually brings to the historical fiction side, she uh, she applied to a newfound subject matter for her, uh, which is which is crime and uh, in this case trauma theory. So give us. Uh, this plot is, is critical here, so we're not going to spoil anything, but can you set up the book a, a bit for us? Sure. So the main character is Detective Anna Hart, and um, like a lot of main characters, she's flawed and looking to, to get away from uh, some pain in her life and retreats to uh, an area of California that she grew up in and ends up um, doing a job she's done for many, many years, which is working on missing persons cases, missing children, in fact. And uh, so that's, that's all I'll say about the plot. Um, but it, it's, uh, it was a really, really good read from her. So very enjoyable. And if she does what many a crime novelist does, if, if that in fact is, is what she's become, if she publishes more with this detective, is, is, that, is that something you're keen to carry on with? I hadn't thought about that as a possibility because uh, reading series is not something that I typically do, but yes, I would certainly give another one a try because I did uh, very much like the character. Uh, I liked the, the setting and uh, I came to appreciate a lot about uh, missing children's cases too. So I would, I would certainly stick with it to see if the, the second novel is as gripping as the first. Okay. Wow. That's great. Um, can you tell us again, the title and the author? Sure. It is When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean.
Wonderful. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. Can you tell us who are you and what do you do for Kobo? Uh, my name is Michelle Katz, and I am the director of original content uh, for the English language department. What's the book that you're recommending to us? The book that I'm recommending this year is A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. What is A Thousand Ships? A Thousand Ships is a feminist retelling of the Trojan War. And I know, I feel like there have been a lot of these in the last five years. Um, mm. And honestly, I'm thrilled. I want more. Yeah, I, I have an unending appetite for this, this topic. Um, and so uh, what makes this one a little bit different is that uh, it's told through a series of vignettes and they sort of weave back and forth through the timeline of the Trojan War. And each of these vignettes focuses on a different female character. And so we hear, I think in the book, it's about 50 characters in total. So it's, it's a pretty like wide scope. Um, but a lot of these characters are women who are mentioned by name, like twice in the original text. So, you know, we, we never really get to hear their perspectives or how the consequences of these events affect them or even like how they may have contributed to these events. Um, and so that is what uh, Haynes is doing in this novel. That sounds wonderful. So this is this is a series of of blown out narratives about these characters who, you know, classicists who are familiar with with the the, the texts that we learn about the Trojan War from. They're just they're just a footnote. They're just they're just a, a passing character. And in in a thousand ships, they're they're a chapter. They're a they're a person. They're they're a player. Absolutely. And you get it's, you know, I, I've always something that I love about retellings in general is a lot of these stories, they're these epic stories, right? So we hear, and then he slayed the monster. And it's just one line, right? So we hear things in these very broad strokes and these like, sort of huge grand statements. And then what we get in like modern retellings is these intimate portraits. And there's like humanity and um, like intimacy and, and beautiful writing. And so we were getting that for all of these women who, yeah, we, we didn't really know much about. Have you read the other contemporary novelists' treatments of um, this classical material? I'm thinking of like Madeline Miller and I think Pat Barker has delved into it. Is this like your new jam? So I read the Song of Achilles uh, when it a, a couple of years after it first came out, um, but I think that's really what kind of kicked off. I would say this this like wave, and I have written very few fan letters in my life, and I actually wrote to her because I was like, "This is so beautiful." And the other one that I I wrote was to Natalie Haynes after I read this one because again I was like so affected by it, and I just thought it they were just such like beautiful, beautiful stories. Um, so I haven't read all of them, but I, I kind of am rationing them out for myself because I know how much I enjoy them. Um, so Pat Barker is, is next up for sure. Um, but I mean, Madeline Miller is, is also just absolutely incredible. That's, that's wonderful. I don't think I've spoken with anybody who's gone, like, who's gone, who's gone hard on, on this, this whole new, literary genre but it's wonderful it's wonderful to see it emerging as a new mm -hmm. a new area for for exploring narratives 
Well, I remember reading um, The Penelopia by Margaret Atwood when it came out and it just like changed like my taste in reading, which I think has happened multiple times for me with Margaret Atwood books. But like that, that was, I mean, maybe the original fem feminist Greek mythology retelling. Um, it's probably not, but uh, within within my, you know, reading life, um, that was sort of the first one that I was exposed to. And, and that's where it all began. So Yeah. I mean, certainly among like, uh, you know, Booker nominated contemporary English language, like, yeah, it's, it's Peggy. She did it again. She like, you know, went and kicked off. Really another. changed the game. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, that just, just that's, that's incredible. Uh, how does this fit with what you usually read? Where, what's, where's your usual taste take you? So I love speculative fiction and I think that this is, even though like speculative is, is usually sort of future. Um, I don't think that this is like crazy different from that because it's, it is delving a lot deeper into like what ifs, right? Um, like, like what would this person have felt? And so I think the, the idea of sort of like remixing is very uh, present in speculative future looking fiction. And so we are definitely getting a little bit of that. So even though um, I don't usually read like historical historical fiction I think that this felt very um it, it felt very comfortable to me to to move into this kind of reading can you tell us again the name of the book and the author it's a thousand ships by Natalie Haynes thanks Michelle thanks Nathan hey my name is Barmeet I'm a delivery manager for Cobus content management system and tell us Parmeet what is the best book you read this year yeah, it was a tough choice. Uh, last year, I haven't, I didn't read a lot like the year before, mm. but I did realize that I ended up reading a lot of high quality books this year. I almost like subconsciously decided to read good books given I already knew I was going to read less. Mm. Um, so picking one was super difficult. I did pick up this like really thin volume of poems and I'm not a reader of poetry called Jejuri uh, or um, in Marathi, it's more closely would have been pronounced Jesuri. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like a little town uh, outside of, you know, where I lived in the city of Pune, around 50 kilometers from Pune. And this book of poems is by a poet called Arun Kolakar. So he's a bilingual poet and pretty, pretty renowned and supposed to be a super great poet, but I hadn't heard much about him, neither about the book, especially since the town was so close to my uh, you know, to my city. Yeah. But yeah, I, I read it this year and just absolutely spectacular poems. I, I just was so uh, engrossed in it. And when I went back to India like a month ago, mm -hmm. I visited the town, like the, the temple town of Jayuri and basically relived the whole sort of book of poems while I was there. So it was absolutely beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful. It was that evocative that when you, when you went back to, to your hometown, you were able to, to venture out to this, this, other, uh, this other place and it, you'd been there already. Yeah, so it was a little funny because when I was reading the book, the name especially, obviously I knew about the, the temple town, but also that my dad used to travel there very often because mm. of work and he used to get us like this mutton from there, yeah. like uh, like a mutton curry. Yeah. So the only thing I sort of associated that town was with this mutton curry my dad used to get. We'd never actually gone there. So I'd never gone there and eat it. So this time I went there with the family. We went to the temple, which is absolutely outstanding. Uh you sort of climb up you know stairs and then there's all these sort of people trying to sell you stuff which you want to sort of offer at the and the book sort of describes all of that you know this 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 
a play between commercialization and the holiness of that temple town. Uh, so you're just sort of reliving all of that. And then we went up there, we came down, we sat at the same place where my dad used to get mutton from, had uh, a good meal and then drove back. I love it. And I'm going to have to cut out the um, mouth sounds of myself as you were describing the mutton. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely yeah. salivation going on. Yeah. So you say you're not a regular poetry reader. Can you describe kind of what was going through your mind as you as you reached for this collection? How did it find its way into your world? Yeah, so most of the poetry I've you know read is has been not English. I, I I'm not sure I understand enough of it. So mostly a lot of my poetry I've read is Punjabi or Urdu, which are also languages I'm not great at, but I at least understand the poetry. So this book I picked up because firstly featured on a lot of lists of best Indian books ever. Uh, and it's like, I've never really heard of this book mm. or this town, I know about it, and I, you know, I, I should reach out for it. And I was able to source it here. It's actually a New York review book. Um, and I was able to source it here. It had like a Rushdie sort of, a, you know, I think Rushdie's on the, on the book where he's written a re- review of the book. Mm. I was really intrigued. Uh, and I, once I read it, I was just, my mind was blown. It was spectacular, very spare, comical, just, mm-hmm. just, just beautiful. Yeah. Would you recommend it to readers who maybe, uh, maybe they, maybe they, they don't see themselves as poetry readers either. Um, I mean, I know you, you read literary fiction and in several languages, give us a sense of where this fits in. Is this, is it really that kind of like poetry of a place poetry of a time is it of the time right now you know it is and it is of a place in that it describes that place so beautifully it is also very easy to understand i found out but also at the same time really deep mm. uh, and very spare you know i think it's not very uh the descriptive this is very less word mm. used so and I, I do think anyone really even if you don't see yourself ever visiting that temple town. You you can read the book and you would find it beautiful, like you'd see it from you know reviews all over the internet. Uh, it's been studied a lot the book, and again, I found that out after I read it, mm. uh, and I highly recommend it to anyone, irrespective of whether you're in poetry or not, and irrespective of whether you see yourself you know going to this little temple town in India ever or not. Yeah. Um, well, we know travel's tough right now. Uh, yeah. and we know, we know we're lucky we got you back, uh, safe and sound, uh, yeah. in this very chaotic time for, for travel. Um, that sounds great. Tell us again, the author and the name of this poetry collection. Sure. The author is Arun Kolatkar. He's a bilingual author. So has some, hint, uh, Marathi and English, uh, books of poetry. And the book is called Jejuri, J-E-J-U-R-I. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Tell us who you are and what you do for Kobo. I'm Rene Dontremont and I'm the comms director at Kobo. Tell us about the best thing you read this year. I've read a few different things, but one that really stands out, and I'm going to go to an audiobook actually. I listened to Will, uh, the memoir penned by Will Smith himself. So I listened to the audiobook. Um, it's actually, um, as I mentioned, written by him and also narrated by him. That just came out. So you must have jumped right on that when it, uh, when it landed. I did. I've been doing a bit of driving, so I've been listening to it every time I get in the car instead of listening to music because I've listened to my playlist a little bit too much. <laughs> What's your relationship with Will Smith as uh, as a celebrity? Are you? Uh, are, I mean, we're about the same age, so you could be a Fresh Prince uh, a D 
DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince fan. Um, you could be a fan of Fresh Prince on television or, or, you know, his, uh, his turn as a, as an action movie star. What's, uh, what's Will Smith to you? I've always been a fan of Will Smith. I, I, I had, um, their first tape on, well, the DJ, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince on the cassette. Yeah. And then I rolled into, uh, Fresh Prince of Air, which I was a huge fan of. Uh, and although I'm not a huge action movie person, I really like the dramatic turn Will has taken. I think he's done an amazing job as an actor. Tell us about the audiobook. What, what do you learn about, about this incredibly well-known figure what, that, uh, that he hasn't already told us? There's some stuff that I found really interesting, especially uh, at the first part of his career. So he uh, basically got some notoriety in the music scene in, in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he and DJ Jazzy Jeff were friends in Philadelphia, right? So they yeah. go way, way, way back. It was interesting to hear about how they became a thing, but it was also interesting to hear how uh, I think they got a little bit too big for their britches and then everything came crashing down and he lost all his money. And things like, I didn't know that when he started Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, for example, he still didn't have his credit cards back. He was still paying for stuff with cash, you know, and that was at the start of the sitcom, but still, it just goes to show that it's not just overnight that you become famous and you have everything you ever wanted, right? Uh, the other thing I would say, though, is that, you know, he, t- he is a little bit narcissistic. <laughs> I guess you don't become that famous without being a little bit narcissistic. And, you know, it, it comes across in the book, but he is a hard, hard worker. I, I, and that's the other thing that comes through. Um, for example, like he's a marketing machine. When you think about, especially his action movies with all the, 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 the music tie-in and, and, and all those things. And he was just talking about, uh, he, he kind of created a vision board for himself. And he, he said to himself, how am I going to become the biggest movie star in the world? And he set off to do that. And one of the, the main things, which is not, you know, rocket science, but it's like touring and doing a ton of uh, premieres in many, many different cities around the world. And for example, each time he'd visit a city, like the, uh, the opening weekend box office numbers, like grow it in, you know, a few million per city where that he visits, right? So, you know, it, it's just really interesting to see how when you put your nose to the grind, it does make a difference in all those things. I mean, it's a, little, a world that we're not part of, Nathan. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> removed from the day-to-day lives of, uh, of communications professionals uh, at, a, uh, at an ebook and audiobook company, for sure. Exactly. Did you feel like the narrator of the book, of course, you know, the, the performer, the vocal performer being Will Smith, did that feel like the same guy from the movies? Did it, did it feel like he was putting on something else or was he, was he coherent with the personality that we all think of? He was exactly him. Yeah, exactly. So uh, is what you would expect from Will Smith. He's funny. He gets very serious, actually. He gets hmm. quite, quite, um, he, he gets personal about lots of stuff in his life. Uh, he shows emotion and things like that. Um, he sings, he raps, uh, he, there's a little bit of everything. There's also lots of music, uh, you know, um, elements to, to, the, to the reading. Throughout mm-hmm. his career, he plays some, some key clips and stuff like that that we've all heard on the radio. Yeah. Um, it's very entertaining, for sure. And, uh, you know, he, he's always had a very, very good relationship with everyone on Fresh Prince, even until now. Mm. And it sounds like the audiobook was absolutely the way to go, not just for his own voice, but for the fact that he's a multimedia star. So, so having those clips and things really brings you along. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Um, and, you know, he talks a lot about his personal life and he's very much um, a family oriented person. And, uh, you know, he has uh, kids with uh, two different women. And to this day, they still all celebrate Christmas together. I think he said for the past 20 years. Wow. So uh, they have like a bit of a, a mixed family that they made work and it's the way it is and that's how they want it and uh he does talk a lot about his kids and his family and how he actually i think pushed his kids a little bit too much when they were young actually mm. he's talking about his eight-year-old daughter and how she um she had a, a a super big hit you probably remember it called whip my hair back and forth I yeah she toured everywhere around the world open for justin bieber with that and apparently she still had a half a tour left and she was like she said daddy she goes i'm done and he said no you're not you still have Jay-Z still needs you to do another half tour. She goes, nope, I'm done. And she, and she actually said like, you're, you, you're not listening to what I want. You're telling me what you want. And he gets really, really into those kinds of conversations with family and how yeah. and he admits to being too pushy and to probably like <laughs> being a little bit too rah-rah, you need to be the best kind of thing. Right. So um, yeah, he, he does come across as a perfectionist to be sure. Right. Sounds like maybe, maybe more of a perfectionist and uh and hype and hype man for himself, then maybe like not, not much of, if you can hear someone, uh, if you can hear someone's complaint and acknowledge it and like, you know, admit you're wrong, you're not a very good narcissist. That's like, a, that's supposed to be a key narcissist thing. So it sounds like he's, yeah. he's missing that, that key attribute, which is, which is, <laughs> which only makes us love him more. For sure. And I, I think the journey in his book, I think he's trying to get to that, that he's realizing it and he's trying to change it going forward. But, yeah. uh, so tell us again, uh, the author and title of this book. The book is called Will, and it is by Will Smith, the actor, Smith. singer, and multimedia <laughs> professional. I think he's going to make it. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> okay. I am Trevor Hunter, and I am Kobo's chief technology officer, which means it's probably always my fault when something goes wrong. Like, uh, <laughs> the, the data center burns down or um, some bug appears and stuff like that. Usually, I'll uh, I'll find a way to fix it and stuff like that, and take responsibility. So. Right. If there's a ship going down, you you find your way to the deck. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I will find the root cause of the ship going down as well, too. <laughs> yeah. Even if you have to do so from the bottom of the ocean, you'll you'll, yes, you'll figure exactly. it out. Exactly. Yeah. What's the book you're recommending for us? Um, today it'll be Midnight Riot by Ben Aronovich, um, and I hope I pronounced that right. But I. I love the atmosphere in this in this book. It's um, set in London, sort of modern day London, um, I guess in the in this past decade at least, annoying stuff. Um, but it just brings back to me that feel that London should feel like that that atmosphere of that. Um, there's a really interesting premise that caught my eye as well too. Is I I'm a science fiction fan, but this is not science. This is about magic, um, mm. which is, you know, apart from, uh, you know, some of the Terry Pratchett stuff and, uh, and things like that, I haven't really delved into the magic side. I've never read the Harry Potter novels and things like that. But the interesting premise that got me in this was that magic was kind of discovered by Isaac Newton um, as a flip side to his scientific uh, writings. He studied things that he couldn't explain by science and put them into a Principia um, magic as well as his more popular Principia mathematica and physics and stuff like that. So um, there's a really interesting 
lending of credibility having his name attached to the study of magic as the start of this for me, which and magic continues to defy any real explanation of the root cause of it, but at least the practices that they're doing to try and, you know, understand it is more scientific in nature than, than anything else in, in these books. And that. So what's, what's, so is the story like, is this like an, um, an alternative magical enlightenment kind of story? A, a little bit. It's modern day. It, mm-hmm. It's not an alternative universe or anything like that, but it's a modern day where science is the popular um, uh, thing, but there's kind of like a small band of practitioners left on the, scientific uh, exploration of the, the magic side as well, too. Um, but the main premise is a detective novel at the end of the mm. day. It's, you know, a, a solving crimes that involve some kind of magic in it and stuff. The backdrop is just this sort of Isaac Newton approach to understanding magic, which is, you know, a little bit interesting from my perspective. You, um, I know you, I know you read, um, a lot of hard science fiction. I know when you're recommending uh, books to, to to us fellow Kobo folks at a town hall or something, I can imagine a Trevor cover for a book. It's usually in deep space. Uh, there, there is, you know, there's a, there's a, either a, a space station or Starcraft of some kind. Um, this is a detective novel though. This is, this yeah. is, this is throwing me for a curve. Um, what's your relationship with crime fiction? Um, not really in the book side of it, but there's a few, like I have a little bit of um, a soft spot for British crime dramas, like um, the one set in Belfast, The Fall, um, or Broadchurch, or things like that. I love the sort of slower pace of it. Um, you know, the thing that builds up a story over many, many episodes. Um, not everybody can take that slower pace, um, but it sort of reminds me of home, being, being from Ireland and the UK and stuff. Um, so kind of like those TV series, a little bit slower paced, um, exploring the characters a little bit more, um, going down false leads uh, a lot rather than just the main uh, storyline and things like that. And then there's the atmosphere and the humor. It's uh, like the humor is very sarcastic. It's It reminds me very much of the Douglas Adams and the... Um, the Terry Pratchett's, it's, you know, it's, I'm going to tell you this thing, but it's going to be completely wrong in the next paragraph. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that sort of thing, or I'm going to tell you something that's obvious to you. And guess what? It is obvious to you just to fill up a, a little bit of narrative and stuff like that. I, I love that sort of, you know, I'll get a chuckle just out of the writing, not because the story itself is necessarily right. funny and stuff. So. Soaked in irony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of sarcasm here and there and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And, is uh is this part of a series it is yep quite a long series from the looks of it i've only scratched the first three or four books of it but i think they're up to nine now or something like that and i've actually convinced my mom to read it and my sister and they're both really into it for some strange reason as well too so is this um, a rare occurrence of you your reading tastes and their reading tastes overlap it it very much is like they're not the science fiction at all although my mom is reading the expanse as well too she's she's really got into that um but yeah this is a rare occurrence where the three of us kind of agree that this series is a good series that we can actually agree on and stuff so it's it's pretty good that's wonderful can you tell me again the name of the book uh that that brought you here and the author um, the name of the book is Midnight Riot by Ben Arnovich, and it's part of a series called The Rivers of London. 
Thank you so much, Trevor. No problem. Thank you, Nathan. Hi there. Can you tell us who you are and what you do at Kobo? So my name is Victoria. I am a senior manager on the communications team. And what is the best book you read this year? That is a tough one, but I think for sure my favorite book that I read this year was Circe by Madeline Miller. Amazing. This is not the only contemporary novel based on uh, classical mythology uh, in this episode. And I love it. Really? So tell us about Circe. (laughs) So Circe is a retelling of the story of Circe, who um, many people know from the Iliad and the Odyssey. She's kind of the um, quote unquote bad guy that um, you know, people come up against, uh, in the traditional mythology. But what I loved about this book is that, um, it's told the story through her, a female lens. And I think, uh, so much of history and so much of mythology and the stories that are shared from ancient times are told through a men's gaze. And so, to be reintroduced to a lot of the events that, you know, we may have heard of from the past, but through this kind of unique um, or different kind of point of view um, really stayed with me and struck me. And Madeline Miller did such a good job at making her like, um, at humanizing her as a character and really making you empathize with her. So uh, it was just, uh, it was one of those stories that just kind of stuck with me longer than, than I was expecting it to. What is it that, that stuck with you? Was it characters? Was there, were there like set pieces in the story uh, that kind of burned themselves into your, into your mind? It's interesting because as far as like set pieces in the story go, you already know key points in the story. If you, if you're familiar with the mythology or like the, the story of Circe and, Mm. and, um, you know, when Odysseus comes to her island and whatnot. So like these key points you're already aware of, but um, they change very drastically when you put yourself in her shoes. Mm. Um, You know, I think like, well, for like one example, um, Cersei's really known for turning like men who come to into her island into animals and like Moer specifically in uh, the Odyssey, I think she turns Odysseus's men into pigs. But when told through her kind of point of view, that's a defense mechanism. Right. These guys should showed up. Exactly. Like if you think about it, a whole group of men storming into your home and you like give them food and you're like, okay, you can stay here, but like, don't come near me. And then they try to like attack you. So yeah, you defend yourself. Yeah, she's a woman living alone. Like, why wouldn't she? They're lucky they got to escape as like living, breathing pork. Right? Like, I'm just going to put you into this like harmless position right now. But you stay there and then, you know, we'll revisit later. So it just gave me a lot of empathy, I think, for women in history. And um for so many women whose who's maybe story or point of view haven't been told and have been kind of um, retold without kind of their side. Mm. So uh, it was, there was a few instances like that where, where I was like, whoa, okay, this makes total sense. But also um, there were other instances where she was just so human and so relatable. Um, it felt like I knew her a little mm. bit. Mm. Are you generally interested in classical mythology is that a place you go on your own time 
<laughs> a little bit. So I, uh, I love ancient history. I do love classical mythology um, and really just mythology in, in, in any form. I think, and it, it kind of makes sense given my line of work. I love storytelling and the roles that stories play in our lives and how certain ones um, like stand the test of time. I also find it fascinating that, you know, there are stories that originate in different parts of the world in ancient time that carry the same structure or same morals, even when there was no chance for overlap. Like mm. that fascinates me. Mm. So, so yes, I think to a certain extent, extent, we could definitely say that I, I definitely love going back to the classics or, or, you know, learning about um, ancient history in general, because I also think it's, it's interesting as a point of view or as a point of information and understanding how we got to where we are. Mm -hmm. So um, another book that I loved, I'm not sure if this is gonna ruin it, but another book that I loved was um, Sapiens. Uh, But that I found fascinating because he talks about storytelling and the role that it played in our our development as a human race and uh, the ability that it it has to make people work together or to buy in to do one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that has a lot of power, so. Um, I just find it interesting as a like chronological, uh, from then to now kind of thing. So, yeah, it sounds like the story, uh, story is pretty durable because it, it, it's, you know, it, it can be retold by a contemporary literary novelist and it, and it mm-hmm. stands up. Mm-hmm. Now I asked, uh, I had to ask Michelle this because, um, uh, Michelle recommended a thousand ships by Natalie Haynes, which is also a retelling of classical myth. Um, have you been reading around this, this, this movement, this area in literary fiction right now where the classical mythologies are being retold um, the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood to uh, Pat Barker um, has, has written uh, a couple of books. Is this, mm-hmm. is it, or is Circe your first book in the, in this area? So uh, I wouldn't say it's the first book in this area. I have read a few other ones. Um, one of them being the Song of Achilles, which mm. is similarly kind of a retelling um, of, of, you know, the legend of Achilles. Um, I haven't read A Thousand Chips, although it's on my to read list. Uh, so I definitely think, um, you know, it's a growing trend. Historical fiction has been popular for quite some time. What I find interesting is this retelling, this exploration of a different point of view. And I think that's a reflection of our modern times as we're exploring different people's experiences um, in society and how, you know, the narrative that we might have grown up with may not necessarily be the correct one because it's not the only one. Mm. And so from a retelling of these classical stories, myths, whatever, I think it's a bit of a reflection on society currently in that we're open to exploring these perspectives and considering things that maybe we 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 may not have considered before. Um, so I'm I'm all for it. I kind of hope that we get more of them because I think also in retelling myths, it allows us to reconsider current narratives without um without like butting up against the hard things that maybe we're not ready to face. Mm. And so I think it's a really important first step, especially for people who are maybe just on the beginning steps of, of re-educating themselves or unlearning the things that they need to unlearn. Mm. Um, whether that's from a race standpoint, a gender standpoint, whatever biases that we're inherently taught as we grow up. Um, 
so this kind of retelling of of historical fiction, I think, um, is almost like a yeah. um, it's a, a gateway. Up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like decolonizing all of your modes of thinking are really is really hard. But like picking some holes in Homer, uh, that's that's a little more achievable. It feels like not safer. I don't think that's the right word, but like it's not as threatening, I think, yeah. as a challenge to your own biases yeah. when it's seen as a historical story versus yeah. a modern day one. Yeah. And, um, you know, so in, in that way, it's for some people, it may be safe, but it's just as critical in starting that kind of conversation and that journey and reevaluating the perspectives and biases that we have in, in not only how we perceive things, but also the stories that we tell. Mm. So tell us again, the name of the book and the author. So the name of the book is Circe by Madeline Miller. Uh, and I highly recommend you check it out. Thanks, Vic. Thanks once again for joining us and for listening to Kobo in Conversation in 2021. More great authors are on the way. So if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you're listening. And we're going to make sure to keep bringing you the best author interviews around.